admired Phyllis Schlafly and the Eagle Forum and all of you Eagles. It's, it's, it's exciting for me to be back with you again today. Um, Uni Smith asked me to address today the topic of climate change and energy policy. Is green the new red? And I'm delighted that she did. The timing, I think, couldn't be better. Uh, I could give you uh, literally hundreds of quotes stretching back over 60 years and more, showing the alliance of environmentalists with socialists and communists around the world, but uh, I would prefer instead to focus on things that are more contemporary. Yesterday, hundreds of thousands, probably even millions of people, uh, in 2,500 cities in 150 different countries around the world, went on strike to protest climate change. And that was just the, sort, the, just the start of a whole week of such strikes. Mainstream media and climate activists around the world credit Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old Swedish girl, with starting the climate strike movement. She got great publicity when uh, she traveled to New York by yacht rather than flying, so she could boast of doing it with zero carbon dioxide emissions. Ironically, the crew had to fly back to Europe, their travel, <laughs> putting several times as much CO2 into the air as if she had just flown over herself. But then... <laughs> <laughs> right. But then, she's been nominated, by the way. But then appearances are everything, aren't they? So she was the headliner for a demonstration in New York City yesterday, and she'll speak to the UN at its big climate action conference in New York this week. The reality, of course, is that Thunberg is being exploited by sophisticated leaders of the climate alarm movement. She herself, of course, knows next to nothing of the science of climate or the science and engineering and economics of how we make and distribute <coughs> the, the massive amounts of abundant, affordable, reliable, instant on demand, even when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, energy without which absolutely nothing gets done around the world and nobody eats, nobody has clothing or shelter, Nobody travels, nobody communicates, nobody gets health care, nobody gets protection from heat and cold. Greta isn't the only young person being exploited. Millions more are all over the world as they're called to skip school to protest climate change. And the leftists who control most of the world's educational system are egging them on. Back on September 12, the New York City Public Schools Twitter account had this. Encouraged by Mayor Bill de Blasio, the schools will excuse absence of students participating in the climate strike. Now, what student wouldn't take up that offer, regardless what he or she thought about climate change? Shut down DC organized by Action Network, intends to bring business and government to a halt here in Washington next Monday. Uh, <clears throat> at a meeting September 4, 
shut down DC affinity groups adopted the demands put together by the Strike with U.S. Youth-Led Coalition. Note those words, youth-led. Does anyone really believe this highly coordinated, magnificently marketed action funded to the tune of millions and millions of dollars was led by youth? Well, of course not. But Hollywood has taught us that parents are stupid and mean and irresponsible and the kids will save the world. So if you want attention and action, you claim youth lead your movement. So what are their demands? Time permits only the briefest discussion of these. The Green New Deal, introduced as a resolution in the House of Representatives by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez early this year, the Green New Deal would cost, uh, according to the American Enterprise Institute's Ben Zyker, who ran the numbers, uh, roughly $9 trillion per year. That's over two-fifths of total GDP. And full implementation would have no detectable effect on global average temperature by the end of this century. Only $490 billion a year of that would actually be the cost of transitioning to 100% renewable energy. The rest would come from the GND's special or social programs about which I'll talk a little bit more shortly. The second demand is respect of indigenous land, which is code for the generations-long environmentalist dream of keeping indigenous people living in harmony with nature, that is, outside the industrial economy and consequently suffering short lives plagued by sickness. But there's a little more to this. It reveals the underlying cultural Marxist tactics of identity politics and intersectionality. Because of course, all indigenous people think alike and every revolutionary cause gains strength by persuading members of different identity groups that their interests intersect. The third is environmental justice, which is essentially code for erasing inequalities of wealth and power, but using environmental policy as the vehicle, because of course, those inequalities can only have come about by the strong oppressing the weak, by the rich exploiting the poor. What these folks really mean by justice is social justice, which I've shown in my booklet, Social Justice Versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel, available at the Cornwall Alliance's exhibit table out here in the hall, is actually the opposite of justice. Social justice equals injustice. Fourth, they want protection of biodiversity. Because as everybody knows, climate change threatens to cause the sixth mass extinction in Earth's history. Polar bears are, of course, the poster child for this, despite the fact that their numbers have more than quadrupled since the 1960s, and they're not endangered. No, global warming threatens extinction for thousands, no, hundreds of thousands, no, millions of species. Just how it does that is a mystery since all kinds of life has thrived most in the warmer periods of geologic history. And uh, the carbon dioxide that the climatistas blame for global warming 
is plant food. Every doubling of CO2 concentration in the atmosphere gives you an average 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. Plants grow better in warmer and cooler temperatures and in wetter and drier soils. They make better use of soil nutrients and they resist diseases and pests better, so they extend their ranges. They also improve their fruit to fiber ratio, which means more food for everything that eats plants or eats something that does eat plants. And that, of course, all makes extinction less likely, as well as feeding the poor more easily. And the fifth demand is sustainable agriculture, which means, in essence, abandoning the high-tech, high-energy, highly mechanized farming that made agricultural production outstrip population growth and, and puts abundant, affordable, healthful, reliable food on, the, on people's tables all year round. And because, according to the climate alarmists, raising cattle, pigs, and chickens for food contributes to global warming, sustainable agriculture is now tied to a global campaign against eating meat that has linked hands with the trendy left movement among Christians called compassionate eating that urges vegetarianism or veganism as a moral duty, despite the Apostle Paul's saying in 1 Timothy 4 that those who demand abstention from various foods as a religious or moral duty, and I note, I, I have no problem with those who say they want to do this because they think it's healthier for some strange reason, uh, but Paul says those who demand abstention from various foods as a religious or moral duty are promoting, quote, doctrines of demons, unquote, because everything, he says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The Cornwall Alliance is distributing a wonderful new book, What Would Jesus Really Eat? The Biblical Case for Eating Meat, which I hope you'll also pick up at our table. So, who are involved in the Action Network, which is organizing Shutdown DC, and what do they stand for? They claim to include, quote, indigenous peoples, as well as black and brown, and are inspired by First Nations, who are waging, First Nations is the, the aboriginals of Canada, uh, who are waging some of the most powerful fights of our time against fossil fuel infrastructure. Here again, the cultural Marxist tactics of identity politics and intersectionality appear. Just as an aside, let me point out that they'd better hope their fights against fossil fuel infrastructure fail. Fossil fuels currently provide about 85% of all the energy on which human lives depend today for light, heat, transportation, medical devices, and all other powered machinery, and the thousands of byproducts of petroleum and natural gas, including fertilizers and pesticides that enable farmers to feed us, medical di medicines doctors use to heal us, and plastics that package our food for safe and low-cost transportation and keep it from spoiling, not to mention major components of the wind turbines and the solar panels that these short-sighted people would, do, would want to use in place of fossil fuels. Demanding rapid decarbonization of the world's energy infrastructure is essentially civilizational suicide. Now why do these folks fight against fossil fuels? Because they claim People around the world are experiencing superstorms, floods, droughts, and wildfires at unprecedented rates 
with low-income communities and communities of color hit first and worst, or as 1960s radical leftist and self-professed evangelical Jim Wallace's sojourners put it, quote, global patterns of disparity compound this. Communities in the global south are on the front lines of climate change, hit first and worst, even though they have done the least to cause climate change. The fact is, however, that even the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which climate alarmists the world over treat like the voice of God, and the US Global Change Research Program, whose every pronouncement they treat like prophecy, have told us repeatedly that there has been no increase in the frequency or the intensity of any extreme weather events, and that even if there had been, it would be impossible to attribute it to climate change, whether man-made or natural. Further, as I pointed out in an article in the stream on September 13, uh, note that the uh, term disparity, a common sign that what's really going on is politics, not science. It's the politics of egalitarianism, which confuses equality with justice. These are social justice warriors not people driven by hard science. And again, as I demonstrate in social justice versus biblical justice, social justice simply equals injustice. Still, are communities in the global south hit first and worst by climate change? Well, actually, the hard data show, as greenhouse theory predicts, the opposite. The northern hemisphere is warming twice as fast as the southern hemisphere and the polar regions are warming faster than the equatorial region. But let's go on with Action Network's rationale for shutdown DC. They say in the, whoops, I'll skip that, or maybe I won't. Did I miss something? Oh, I have a missing slide here. Oh well, I can still tell you what the slide says. They say, it is not a coincidence that climate impacts strike along the lines of race and class so starkly. Climate change is a product of the same processes which cement racism and wealth inequality in our country and our world. The transition off of fossil fuels is inevitable, justice is not. To achieve climate justice, we must not only decarbonize the atmosphere, but also decolonize and democratize our economies and our communities. Shutting down the nation's capital could be our best shot at starting this justice-based transition. We need a broad-based coalition that em emphasizes the overlap of our struggles. We look to the recent passage of the Climate and Communities Protection Act by New York Renews, a coalition led by black, brown, and labor organizations for inspiration. Anyone familiar with cultural Marxism could hardly ask for a more bold admission that what's really driving this movement is not climate science, not the science or engineering or economics of energy, but Marxist egalitarianism. The science, engineering, and economics of climate and energy all weigh in against what these people demand. As the Cornwall Alliance argues in our documentary DVD, Where the Grass is Greener Too, Helping the Poor Amid Climate Confusion, which is available at our table, I do hope that you all will take advantage of these things. Um, 
Let's see, I'm sorry. The, the reality is that it is the roughly two billion people in the world who still have no electricity, or only occasional electricity, who will suffer the most from the substitution of expensive, intermittent, unreliable energy from wind and solar for the abundant, affordable, reliable energy from fossil fuels, without which no society has or ever can rise and stay out of poverty. They'll be trapped in their poverty with its high rates of disease and premature death for generations to come. No, it's, it's really politics, Marxist politics, that drives this whole movement. Just consider again this quote. To achieve climate justice, we must not only decarbonize the atmosphere, but also decolonialize and democratize our economies and our communities. We need a broad-based coalition that emphasizes the overlap of our struggles. We look to the recent passage of the Climate and Communities Protection Act by New York Renews, a coalition led by black, brown, and labor organizations for inspiration. There they are, the telltale signs of cultural Marxism, economic egalitarianism, industrial democracy, which <laughs> translates and transitions into state ownership of the means of production, and intersectionality and identity politics played along racial lines. Action Network, with its shutdown DC protest, is just one among hundreds of climate activist organizations in America and around the world, but they are representative. And the Marxist roots of all this should surprise no one. From Marxist billionaire industrialist Morris Strong, who spearheaded the creation of the UN Environment Program, uh, from which came Agenda 21 and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, to French President Jacques Chirac, who in 2000 called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change's Kyoto Accord the first step toward global governance, to Christiana Figueres, former executive secretary of the UNFCCC, who at a news conference in Brussels leading up to the Paris Climate Summit in 2015 that gave birth to the Paris Climate Agreement, said, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. This is probably the most difficult task we have ever given ourselves, which is to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. Uh, Figueres, by the way, is the daughter of self-defined socialist former Costa Rican president, Jose Figueres Ferrer. Well, all of this, of course, assumes that, that uh, socialism is going to be a better steward of our, of our environment than capitalism. And I address that in my booklet, Is Capitalism Bad for the Environment? I answer the five, I think, strongest arguments against capitalism. And then I also provide a historical comparison of capitalism's and socialism's environmental records. Well, finally, we have Marxist activist and author Naomi Klein, author this year of, of uh, On, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, whose 2016 book, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate, blames capitalism not just for catastrophic climate change, but for every conceivable kind of environmental disaster, despite the fact that uh, <laughs> capitalism's environmental record is far better than socialism's, 
And indeed it must be because owners of private property have greater incentive to take care of it than anyone else. Which is why you find graffiti on public bathroom walls and not on your bathroom wall at home. <laughs> Unless, like me, you have a spouse who has a sense of humor who writes on your bathroom wall, long live private property. <laughs> and of course, we can also refer to AOC and Bernie Sanders and pretty much all the rest of the candidates for the Democratic nomination for president. The environmental movement, and especially the climate alarmist movement, is riddled with red. Is green the new red? Well, not all of it. Not all of the green, that is, since there are sincere environmentalists who are not socialists. And there are also sincere socialists who are not environmentalists. But there is a huge overlap, and it's growing, and more and more young people, especially Christian young people, products of America's public schools and therefore, that word is important, ignorant of socialism's history, featuring well over a hundred million people murdered by their own governments, these young people embrace socialism as a matter of what they think is social justice. So what can we do? What can you do to counter this movement? It's tempting to recommend all kinds of strategies and tactics, and I'll give you a, a few, but first and foremost, I must emphasize that we are in a battle of ideas, which, as Richard Weaver said, have consequences. It does little good to fight the consequences of ideas if you don't fight the ideas themselves. Adam Smith wrote in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, to which his later book, Wealth of Nations, was an 1,100-page-long footnote demonstrating the truth of his claim that when you leave people free to serve their own self-interests, which is not the same thing as selfishness, by the way, they will serve each other better than if you try to coordinate their efforts. Um, Adam Smith wrote in Theory of Moral Sentiments, Though nature exhorts mankind to acts of beneficence by the pleasing consciousness of deserved reward, she has not thought it necessary to guard and enforce the practice of it by the terrors of merited punishment in case it should be neglected. Beneficence, goodwill, even love, is the ornament which embellishes, not the foundation which supports the building, and which it was therefore sufficient to recommend, but by no means necessary to impose. Justice, on the contrary, Smith goes on, is the main pillar that upholds the whole edifice. If it is removed, the great, the immense fabric of human society, that fabric which to raise and support seems in this world to have been the peculiar and darling care of nature, must in a moment crumble into atoms. In order to enforce the observation of justice, therefore, nature has implanted in the human breast that consciousness of ill desert, those terrors of merited punishment, which attend upon its violation as the great safeguards of the association of mankind to protect the weak, to curb the violent, and to chastise the guilty. Mm -hmm.